0: This morning, Uh, if you would open your Bibles to 2 Peter, 3rd chapter, and the 10th verse, 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10, Uh, this is one of those verses that deals with the very end of all things. We know that we're living in the last days, we know the end of all things is near in a sense, Uh, but we're also, um, we have to look and see what the, the big picture is. That's a big part of. What has to go on as we study the Scripture? We want to know what the big picture is, and then we drill down into the various verses to get a better picture uh, of the details that go into it. And uh, we all know we've been—it's uh, uh, been quite a week, uh, to say the least. And it certainly looks like that everything, uh, the Lord, has put everything together and for His return. And I'm ready for it. I don't know if anybody else is or not. Uh, USC got beat real bad by Notre Dame last night, so we're ready to go. I mean, <laughs> sadly, that's how a lot of people view things. <laughs> whether, or not, whether or not their football team won, instead of what's going on worldwide and around the world, we've got a uh, we've got a mess, and it looks like it's escalating and uh, just going to get worse. Things in the last days from Second Peter, Second Timothy three says that they're going to go from bad to worse. So now we've seen an escalation. Now we have seen a convergence of events that has never before happened in the history of the church. We have the king of the north in place, kings of the east in place. We have the king of the west not yet rising to power, but he doesn't have to till after the rapture of the church. Uh, The king of the south is pretty well in place. When the Christians are gone, uh, he'll be in place too. So... Everything is is set, the stage is set, unlike it's it's ever been in the history of the church. And uh, Israel's under attack now. When you start looking at world history, you have to constantly keep Israel in focus because that's where things revolve, that's what God has chosen. He made a promise in Genesis 12 that he says, those who bless you I will bless and those who curse you I will curse. Now, the Mosaic law came 400 years later, and we know that the church age came a couple of thousand years later almost, and we, we know that he never removed that promise. So those who go after Israel, that's dangerous ground. That's all you can say, that that's dangerous ground to be on, but it's also a sign that the last days are, are, are coming upon us. So let's be prepared. What are we supposed to be doing well, that's actually what we're going to be covering today. In the second session, including that in the life of Christ, what are we supposed to be doing now? And that's that's the question we're supposed to answer. How then shall we live? We're looking at that and starting to in Ezekiel on Wednesday nights, the question of how then shall we live? What shall we do? So in any event, hopefully let's go in front of the throne <clears throat> of grace. Ask that the Holy Spirit will be our real teacher. Help us to understand it, uh, remember it, and then use it wisely as we approach this world. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for your blessings, your tests. We thank you for your opportunities. We thank you for the time in which we live Father, it is one of the most exciting times to be alive in the history of the world because we see it all coming together. And for that, we thank you for the privilege of participation. I pray that we'll have eyes to see and ears to hear, that we'll be able to uh, properly evaluate things and then not panic by them, but instead use them as an impetus for us to take the gospel to those who are lost and dying. Father, we pray that you'll nourish our souls. With this portion of your word, for we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as you look at the big picture, you, you go to the beginning. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And he brought the heavens and earth into existence, Genesis 1.1. 1, 1. In, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then whenever you get to the end of the book, in Revelation what you find out is that there is a new heavens and a new earth that is going to be coming into existence now mankind in its arrogance thinks it can bring in this this new new heavens and new earth this millennial kingdom and a lot of that is done with this climate change propaganda that is going around that hey we can save the planet we couldn't we couldn't make it and we can't save it and that's just the bottom line that's the way it works uh, <clears throat> how are we going to save the planet when we don't remotely have the power to even do that? And God just shows us his power. He shows us his organization. Had an eclipse go over yesterday. You know, God put these things in such an organized structure that we can predict them. Isn't that fascinating? Predict them years in advance. Because he said, come on, take a look at what I have done, what I have set up. This didn't just happen by chance. That somehow all this, system, this systematic flow of the seasons it just happened by chance, and out of of that, and see, this is this is the world saying that the earth has always been here, that matter has always been here, and there's only two choices for what's the ultimate cause of all things: either God or matter. Philosophers since Aristotle have tried to figure that out, and Aristotle tried to put the two together. They have tried to say something has always been here because where there's an effect, there's a cause. And that's one of the laws of thermodynamics. Where there is an effect, there's a cause. And so what is the ultimate cause of all things? Now, humanity, and its decadent thinking, thinks that matter has always been here. Their viewpoint now is that out of this primeval soup that we have, in fact, I went on the Internet, and you can buy a can of primeval soup if you want to, uh, but out of this primeval soup crawled this little creature, and this little creature somehow uh, ha, had life imputed to it, but it, it, this is the view, and it crawled out, and since there was no God, because matter is always eternal, they had to make one, okay? Okay. So in the realm of evolutionary thinking, they think that the Jews made a God. They think that Adam made a God. They think we manufactured the God. And they thought, well, now in the form of evolutionary thinking, we need to become God. That's where they're at today. That's why they think we can save the planet, and we can save the universe, and we can save all these things, and we can't even save ourselves. And that's what they don't realize. Now, how is this all going to end, and why? And that's part of what we're looking at uh, this morning. I'm going to read from verse 8, which says, Do not let this one fact escape your notice. Beloved, with the Lord one day, as is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. In the context of 2 Peter 3, he has just told us that evolution is not a valid thought process. Okay it escapes their notice, the world was formed out of water and by water. So what we see now on planet Earth is basically a result of the flood. So he's saying, that's what we need to, to look at. You can explain the Grand Canyon. You can explain these these great marvels by a global, universal flood like the Bible says happened. And he says, don't don't, so he's not introducing evolution back into the thinking. Now I've talk to people, good, strong Christian people, friends, and they pull out this verse and they say this opens up the door to evolution. Then they develop a theistic evolution that the days are not really days back in Genesis 1. And so they're really long periods of time and off we go into the wild blue yonder. He's just said evolution is not the way. <clears throat> he says also God reckons things differently than we do. Okay? He's not bound by time. He's the one that created time. And then in verse 9, he says, The Lord is not tarrying concerning the promise as some consider slowness. Where is he? But is patient toward you. And then he tells us why. Not willing for anyone to ruin themselves. That's the word apolumi. means to bring to ruination, not to cease to exist. He says, But for all to come, to a change of mind. Why is the Lord tarrying? Because he wants everybody to be saved. Why? Because his son died for everybody. He did. It's it's wasted. That's why part of the, the blood was poured out at the base of the altar and the various sacrifices. Because some of it was sprinkled because not everybody was going to accept the atonement. But the rest of it is poured out. It was paid for through the sacrifice, but it was not availed of, and that's the that goes all the way back to the to the uh, offerings. He says, but he wants everybody to have a change of mind about what a change of mind about who the Lord is, because most of the world, it's estimated five out of six people on the planet today don't don't believe in Jesus Christ. Now, that's only about one out of six, and I think that number might be high as far as believers. I I don't know. It's all up to God, but they estimate one out of six. And when you start looking at it and putting it together with the numbers from the book of Revelation and everything, at the rapture, a sixth of the world's population is going to be gone, roughly. Then the kings of the east killed a third of the world's population. And by the time we get down to the second advent, the population is down to maybe a billion. That's still a lot of people, but we we don't know how many, but that's just crunching some numbers on what we have to work with. Now, verse 10, Peter is inspired to write, but the day of the Lord will come. Now, <clears throat> this is the word "hako" in the Greek. Normally, we would think of the word "erkomai." That's what a if you, if you study greek and you're doing you going through the original languages going through the original manuscripts the erkomai stresses the act of travel that's what you did getting to church today okay you erkomai now when you got here you hako because hako emphasizes the arrival at a location So this word, it says, will come, it's emphasizing the fact that it will arrive. It's a future tense. It's a future active indicative. It says it will arrive. It is a pure prophecy that we find here. Future tense puts it in, obviously, in the future. And it says the day of the Lord will arrive. How? Like, similar to, host is the word that is used here. Not exactly as, that is, kathos, but host in a similar manner, like a thief, a kleptase. Uh, Some of the world's countries now are called kleptocracies, because it's all about how much you can steal and get away with within the country, and so they call them a kleptocracy. Looks like some of the places on the West Coast are becoming that in the United States. Whatever you can steal and get away with that's under $1,000 you don't get uh, charged with a felony for. It's not that way in Oklahoma yet. Praise the Lord for that. Like a thief, it's going to be unexpected. It's going to be sudden and announced. It says, in which, now this is a specific point of time within the day of the lord in which the heavens will pass away and here is the word erkomai with the para attached to it and it is a future middle indicative which is an interesting use of the words that we find here because parerkomai means to go beside of or to to pass away and it's a middle Indicating it happens from the inside out. They're going to pass away from the inside out. It's going to be an explosion. Guess where the real big bang is going to be? With a roar. This is an interesting word. It's a rhodzadon. And it's only used once. The only place you're going to find it in the New Testament. It's used outside of the New Testament... For the whistling of an arrow. If you've ever had one come close to you, hopefully you haven't. But you you hear it go whistling by. You actually hear it whistle as it goes away from you if you shoot it out of a bow. It means the whistling of an arrow, a rush of wings. It's used outside of the Bible for the hissing of a snake uh, or of a fierce flame that actually makes a noise. So we're going to translate this, a rushing sound. So it says when it goes away, it's going to go... Shoo. That's kind of the idea of it. And the elements, the stoichion. This word is used seven times in, in the New Testament. And the thi- it is the basic thing from which others in a series go. Okay? Because we know cause, effect, cause, effect. And he's saying, all right, we're looking at one of the root causes here, an an element. This is the element, basic elements, the periodic table is what it's looking like. And it's it's saying that these things are going to dissolve from the inside out. Now, and the elements will be Destroyed. This is luo, another future tense. We are dealing with pure prophecy here. And this word means loosed, loosed or dissolved. And the passive indicates that it is done by an outside source. So God is going to trigger this, is what it is saying. These things are going to be triggered, and when as they go, they're going to go from the inside out. Now, this is this is an interesting description. Uh, it says, with intense heat. Here's a present middle participle. The partici- participles in the Greek go with the main verb. So if it's a present participle, it's a contemporaneous action with the main verb, which it says they will be loosed, future passive indicative. And how's it going to happen contemporaneously? It is going to, to really just burn up. This word is kausomai. It's only used two times. In the New Testament. See this description. Of the the end of the world. If you will. People say the end of the world is coming. I got news for them. It's at least a thousand and seven years off. So don't panic. Okay. You see somebody with a sign out on the corner. Applauding for getting the message out. They need Jesus. But the end of the world is not coming. For at least a thousand and Seven years. Now, outside of the New Testament, this word kalsamai is used of a fever that burns from the inside. And it goes with the elements. The elements will be loosed. Now, the corrected word order to the way they actually appear in the Greek, it says, and the elements burning intensely will be dissolved. Okay? So, when the Lord brings this about, and He basically... What does he need to destroy the heavens and the earth? What did he need to create them? A word. Right? All he's got to do is enough. That's, that's it. He doesn't even have to say it. <laughs> he can think it. That's all he needs. And this solar system and all its wonders and all everything, and this earth is Gone. Now, it says uh, burning intensely will be dissolved and the earth, this is the interesting word, gay is the way this word is pronounced and it means ground or dirt. I mean, like we go out and dig out there in the yard and what do we come up with? Gay in the Greek. And, it, and, and it's works. So this earth is going to be gone, the heavens are going to be gone, the earth is going to be gone, and everything that's been built on the earth is going to be gone, <coughs> will be future passive indicative again of katakayo. And this word is used 11 times in the New Testament. It is used, it, it, it's interesting word because kyo by itself means to burn up. And then when you put kata on the front of it, it intensifies it. In other words, kata normally means down as a preposition, so it's going to burn down. But when you put katakayo on the front of it and you look at its usages, in Revelation 17.16 and Revelation 18.8, which deals with religious Babylon in one and prophetical Babylon in the other one, And you read the context around it that is used to describe what katakio actually means. And that means totally burned up, totally annihilated. To the point nobody's going to walk through it again with prophetical Babylon. That indicates something nuclear. They will stand at a distance because of the fear of her burning. So, the day of the Lord will arrive like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a rushing sound and the elements burning intensely will be dissolved and the earth and the works in it will be totally burned up. So the day of the Lord refers to the time from the rapture on through eternity. When we start tracking it down, we got to let the scripture interpret itself for us. What is the day of the Lord? Is it one 24-hour day? Well, we know a day can be longer than 24 hours. Nobody argues that. But we have to let the Scripture tell us when it is longer than 24 hours. And in this case, it does. See, it's used to describe the destruction of prophetical Babylon. It's used to describe the destruction of prophetical Babylon in Isaiah 13. It talks there about the day of the Lord and it's the oracle concerning Babylon that's picked up in Isaiah 47, Jeremiah 50, 51, and Revelation 18. So it is is used to describe the destruction of prophetical Babylon. It's used to describe a day when the Lord brings discipline on a nation including Israel. This is another usage of the term day of the Lord. It's used about 25 times. In the entire Bible. So when you track these down, so you let the Scripture tell you what it's trying to say. You track these down and identify in context what each of is telling you. And the day of the Lord is 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 used to uh, describe when the Lord brings discipline on a nation. And this includes Israel. Okay, includes Israel. Now, <clears throat> are they are they back in the land in belief right now? The Jews, sadly enough, are almost hostile to the gospel and to Christians. We know Christians over there right now, and they have to be—they have to be careful, just as careful around the Jews as they are around the Muslims in Israel. Now that's sad. Now, is Israel back in the land in belief? And the answer is no. Now, in Ezekiel 33 to 39 it tells us they're not going to be in belief when they initially come back into the land. They are not going to believe fully until Jesus sets foot on the Mount of Olives. Okay, Thus all Israel will be saved. Part of that is because a lot of Israel will be gone with the goats in the separation of the sheep and the goats. Now its primary emphasis is the second advent. If we track this down, here's a whole bunch of verses. I'm not going to read all these verses for you this morning. I'll put you all to sleep and it's too early. Too many of you told me you're trying to wake up still. And so, you know, and I'm I'm trying to get this metal thing in my hip to adjust to the temperature <laughs> there is out there. But the primary emphasis of the term day of the Lord is the second advent. That's the primary focus. You can look up these verses. Uh, these, are, these are good verses to look up because it gives you an idea what the day of the Lord is. But with the creation of the church, the day of the Lord begins at the rapture. Okay? Because what He is going to do, He's going to pour out His wrath on humanity. So when we look at the day of the Lord and we read 1 Corinthians 5 5 5, 1 Thessalonians 5 2, 2, Thessalonians 2 2. Remember, Paul wrote a letter to the, to the Thessalonians. The first one was all commendations of being a model church. The second one, he commended them on their faith and their love, but not their hope. And the reason is because their hope had been shattered. How do we know that? We keep reading. 2 Thessalonians 2 tells us. That somebody said that I sent you a letter saying the day of the Lord has already come. Now I have a question for you. What if someone said the rapture had happened and you've been left behind? Okay, and we we thought we were going to go. Well, that might shake our hope, right? Because hope is faith about the future. Simply, simply defined. That's what hope is. So <clears throat> The Lord is going to—it's going to start with the advent of the church. The day of the Lord starts with the rapture, and then goes on through the tribulation when He pours out His wrath. Revelation 6:17 tells us that He is pouring out His wrath. At that I believe right at the outset of the tribulation, because we are told that we shall be delivered from the wrath that is coming on all the earth several times. First Thessalonians 5:10, just being one of them. Now this passage tells us the day of the Lord will usher in the eternal state. Which will be after the great white throne judgment. The eternal state is going to, to start after the millennial kingdom. And, and guess what? The present heavens and earth are going to be taken out. Now we're going to follow this on through uh, our, with our thinking. <clears throat> to some people this day of the Lord and for us it's the it's the rapture of the church will arrive like a thief unexpected and sudden although not unplanned not an accident the lord has this all timed out everything is coming together there i don't believe there needs to be any time between the rapture and the beginning of the tribulation <clears throat> i believe the rapture happens the tribulation starts 2521 days later the Lord sets foot on the Mount of Olives at the second advent. And I think that's what the I think that's what the scripture shows. But it's not it's not an accident, it is not unplanned. Now thieves, here's the analogy to thieves. They come to steal your treasures. So we're called to protect the ones that matter. What does the Bible say about thieves in the New Testament? See, if it's going to come like a thief, let's let the Bible tell us about thieves. So thieves come to steal your treasure, your treasures, so we're to protect the ones that really matter. Now, <clears throat> I'm not going to ask how many people have safes in their house. And we've got it to protect our valuables, right? Or we have a safety deposit box. We have something to protect these things that really matter. Let me tell you something. They don't really matter. They don't. I didn't say that. Jesus did. Matthew chapter 6, 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves. Do not break in and steal. Heaven is thief proof. The safest, securest place ever in history. Where your treasure is, this is the kicker, there your heart will be also. Whatever is so important to you that you will die for it. That's where the treasure is. And he says, is it is the treasures on earth or are they in heaven? Peter's going to make another, after we get out of this verse, he's going to tell us what kind of people should we be since it's all going to be gone. Should we be spending our life obsessing over the accumulation of things? What should we be doing? the answer to that is found right here. This kingdom of Jesus is not of this world. But one of these days, he's going to put it on this world. And we'll get to enjoy that. Thieves accomplish... Their objective when we're unprotected. Again, Jesus, Matthew 24, Olivet Discourse, verse 42, Therefore be on the alert, <clears throat> for you don't know which day your Lord is coming. Be sure of this, if the head of the house had known at the time of the night the thief was coming, I assume that most of you have home protection somewhere in your house. Okay, of some kind or another. And what if you got a note that said somebody's going to break into your house 2.15 in the morning. Now, would you use that protection to ward off that thief? And the answer's probably yes. It makes sense. You don't want to sleep through it, right? If you know when he's coming, you're going to be there and, and ready. He would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you be ready too, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour when you don't think he will. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. When he comes back. Now, this is... Second Advent and this passage, but a direct application of the rapture. Because he's talking to to Jews and it's primarily a tribulational passage in the Olivet Discourse in, in Matthew 24. But it's applications to us. If you have a great prophetic event getting ready to happen, it makes sense, doesn't it? Many people will be spiritually intoxicated when the Lord comes at the rapture. Now, do you think that might be the case? And sadly, many who are spiritually intoxicated, I think, are in the church. Why? I think they're there because a lot of them have discarded prophecy at all. They think it's all coincidences. They think that it's... that it's. Uh, uh, Oh, it's just a cycle of history. It's going to happen. It's going to ebb and flow. People are going to fight. and They're not going to fight. Yeah, it says there'll be wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, famines, and all those things. But those are increasing. And it's been proven statistically the 20th century had more wars in it, 20th century, than the rest of history combined. And people say, that's just because we wrote it down better in the 20th century. no. You know the one thing that nations, ancient nations, wrote about? Wars. What they usually didn't write about was losses in wars. But you find out who won because they wrote about who won those wars. It's one of the things that leads credibility to the Bible because in the Bible you find the victories and losses of the Jews. It's an honest representation that is being given yeah they went out and they weren't ready they didn't call on the Lord and guess what they got whooped. Now first <clears throat> Thessalonians 5 and this is this is Paul's answer because in chapter four is the rapture passage, the key one we who are alive and remain shall be caught up to meet him in the, in, the, in the air okay that's the key rapture passage and sometimes people quote that passage, and then they stop reading, and they keep reading. First Thessalonians 5 says, "Now, as to the times and the epics, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you." Paul's writing, a model church, Thessalonica, 5051 .AD. that's when he's writing. he says, "I don't need to write you anything about the times and the epics. When is this going to happen? I don't need to write about that." He says, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. He's talking about the rapture in context. While they are saying peace and safety. Have you noticed that? They want the world in peace. The United Nations is supposed to bring us peace. United Nations can't remotely bring us peace. There's no way it's going to happen. But he says, while they're saying peace and safety... Destruction will come upon them suddenly, like birth pangs on a woman with child, and they shall not escape. I love that analogy because one of the great things about, you know, having, having been the father of two kids, you know it's coming. <laughs> For nine months, you have known that a birth is coming, right? But <laughs> when it gets ready to happen, it's like suddenly. Here's that first big contraction. And you go, oh, guess what? And then they get worse, and they get worse. Well, guess what we've got coming? What happens along the way? Baxton Hicks contractions. We've given all this stuff names now. They didn't have back then. But what happens to, to a lady that is getting ready to give birth? She knows it. Everybody around her knows it. Okay. Uh, She's usually one of the most peaceful, graceful creatures to live with on the face of the earth during some of those difficult times. But uh, Helen would get me for that. (laughs) He says, and they shall not escape. You, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day should overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day, we are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us, be, let us not sleep as others do. This word for sleep in 1 Thessalonians 5 is a different word than the one in chapter 4. They both translate they translated them both as sleep. In chapter 4 it's koimeomai, and it is the sleep of believers after they have passed. That's the way they are described. This is the word gregoreo, This is a word for spiritual sleep. They've fallen asleep spiritually. And he says, you've got the information, church at Thessalonica. So you should not be spiritually asleep. And today, when we have people that deny there's going to be a rapture, deny there's going to be a millennium, think the millennium has already come come and gone. Whenever we have people that believe that, they are asleep in these end times. Can't say anything else but. See what Paul said in Ephesians 5.15? Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead. Wake up. Many will be spiritually intoxicated when the Lord comes at the second advent. Now you'd think after the rapture, everybody would be awake. But in Revelation 16.15, it says, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Revelation 16 is preparation for the second advent, which happens in Revelation 19. It's already into the tribulational period. I am coming like a thief that he's talking about. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his garments. Lest he walk about naked and men see his shame. Keeping his garment. You know, the one of the things we see in Ezekiel is the watchman. The watchman's put on the wall, and we're supposed to pay attention. The watchman's supposed to pay attention, and he's supposed to alert everybody. And the Lord makes that watchman accountable. Now, to the Romans, and in this time when this was written, someone that was assigned guard duty for Rome, what happens if they were caught sleeping? They set their robes on fire. That's what happened. How serious was that? In the protection of Rome? It was a death penalty if you if you failed. Or you just got burned real bad. One way or another it was not a not a pleasant thing. He says, and keeps his garments, I think is kind of a little inference back to that. Now the heavens and the earth are going to pass away shortly after the millennium and just before the great white throne. Now where do you get that from? So we're trying to put the package together, but looking in different parts of the scripture where the topic is covered. Now <clears throat> I think this is so beautiful that it's perfectly placed just before the great white throne. So what did we start with? Someone or something has always been here, right? Either God or matter. The universe has always been here, or God has always been here. Which is it? You know, just before the great white throne, the last possible excuse anybody could have is going to be burned up. And think, think, think what this says. It says, I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. Here's the throne, and suddenly the habitat of all creation is going. What happened? What happened? And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things that were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up their dead which were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them and they were judged each one of them according to their deeds. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death the lake of fire and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's a pretty definitive judgment to say the least. And we shouldn't want anybody in the lake of fire. God doesn't want anybody in the lake of fire. But humanity has been given a choice. Now, it's kind of finalized, isn't it? Because one of the arguments is, well, my environment made me what I am. No, your decisions made you what you are. Your environment may have influenced you, but your environment didn't make your decisions. That's one thing the neuroscientists haven't been able to figure out yet is how we make decisions. They can do brain surgery and make you raise your arm. Do all kinds of stuff that can't make you decide. Because that's located in the soul. In the immaterial part of man. And guess what? That's where we become accountable. Being made in the image of God. Now not one word of the law will pass away until everything has been fulfilled. Jesus again, Matthew 5, Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, nor the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished, brought to its desired end. It's not going to disappear because it teaches people that they're sinners and they need a Savior. Not one of the Lord's words is going to pass away. From Matthew 24, I say to you, this generation will not pass away till all these things take place. Hmm. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Whenever Jesus said something, it was, if it hadn't happened, it was good as done. But at that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone speaking from true and pure humanity, Jesus, the God-man, He said, I don't know. It has not been revealed to my humanity. I, I don't know when it will happen. But what I can tell you is, it will happen. Even though the fulfillment was costly. Not one of these words will pass away and Jesus made the statement, but Matthew 26:42 says he went away again a second time and he prayed, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. You know, that was the cup that only he could drink from. Matthew 26 is the equivalent of John 17. And he's talking there to the Lord, glorify me with you with the glory we had before the world began. And he's looking forward to it. And he says, father said be another way to accomplish this redemption redemption let's let's do it and he said not my will but your will be done our new creation caused the old things to pass away according to 2 Corinthians 5:17 i love that cuz 4 and 5 uh, chapter 4 is Momentary light affliction is creating for us an eternal weight of glory. We, we know <laughs> Paul's momentary light affliction because he'll tell them what it is two chapters later. Okay, Beaten, stoned, shipwrecked, a little bit of everything you could imagine. Momentary light affliction. And then in chapter 5, while our outer tent is being torn down, our inner man is being renewed day by day. What happens? We become a new creation in Christ the moment we put our faith in Him. 5.17, if any man is in Christ, i.e. you have had faith, you have believed, and you are entered into union with Christ, he's a new creature. This is not a will be, is it? This is a present. You're a new creation in Christ. Now we're still hauling around this old creation. which we get a little bit tired of from time to time, honestly. He said, the old things have passed away. At one time, your sin nature ruled you. And it was broken, the power was broken the moment you put your faith in Christ. So even when we did the good things, we did them for the wrong reasons. That's what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil opened up. It was a good that was not pleasing to God. It was done for self-glory and personal gain. And part of what we do in this new creation, <clears throat> which First John 3 says, it doesn't sin. That's nice. The new creation doesn't sin. But our old man sure does. But this new creation, see, learns to do the right thing for the right reason and that's what glorifies God you may know people that kind of hit it in the wrong direction and they're doing things for their own glory and their own gain and one of the things I found to pray for is pray <clears throat> that the Holy Spirit will work on them so they do the right things for the right reasons which is to the glory of God and he will so there's no need to get involved in the old things. 1 Peter 4.3 Peter, Peter wrote this in the book before. He says the time has already passed. It is already passed. It's sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles. So if you're a sinner and you've had a sinful life he says time to stop everything you've ever done all that sin in the past just leave it behind. It's enough. You don't need any more. He says, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousings, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. So if that was your life before you became a Christian, and for some it went on after they became a Christian, because it's not an immediate deliverance from the power of sin. But <clears throat> he says, whatever time you spent, it's enough. You don't need any more. You think Peter might have known something about that? Yeah. Point four, if the elements themselves will one day pass, why would we hang on to the elementary principles of the world rather than to Christ? The elements themselves, carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, radon, all those exciting elements you find in the periodic table, if they're already gone, no more neon. Of course, that's a mixture. Anyway, (coughs) Colossians 2, 8, and 9. See to it, no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. According to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world. That's our stoicion word. There's some very base principles that comes out of the sin nature. See that no one takes you captive and says, hey, those things are just fine and good, and God is fine with those. No, he has forgiven those. But he doesn't want his kids living in those things anymore. He broke the bond so we don't have to. He says, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Now, humans constantly try to return to the elementary principles of the world. And these are just legalisms. They become things that we hang on to. They're either sin or they're legalism. Colossians 2 says, if you've died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world. Died with Christ means that you've identified with his death, burial, and resurrection. Why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to such decrees as, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which refer to things destined to perish with the using. You do it in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These matters have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but they're really of no value against fleshly indulgence. <clears throat> church I grew up with, you don't smoke, don't drink, don't dance, don't chew, don't go with girls that do. Okay? The big five. If you could conquer those, you'd end up in heaven. Okay, As I came to find out, that's not what's going to get you into heaven. There's only one way to heaven, and it's not found in action or work. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He made it so very clear. Whoever believes in him will have Not may have. Will have eternal life. Uh, Isn't that a great promise? Because the people of the world have all their alternate viewpoints. Because they all know they're sinners. And they all know that they're facing eternity. And they think they can save themselves. You know, when you find yourself a sinner facing eternity, you either have to find a way to save yourself. Or you have to find a Savior. Christianity says, give it up and accept the Savior. Simple gospel, isn't it? Rather than hanging on to the elementary principles, the oracles of God. That's what we're supposed to hang on to. Learn the oracles of God. What has He laid out before us? What does He see as important? What does He see as the spiritual things in the heavenly places? What does He want? and Hebrews 5.12 And by the way if we followed that on through he says by this time you ought to be teachers so if we need any Sunday school teachers anymore then okay you ought to be prepared already by this time you already uh, you ought to be teachers is what he says let's pray <clears throat> father thank you for the, this day your love and grace and mercy thank you for your blessings and your test and father we want to have a lift up a special prayer for our friends in Israel. We ask for their protection, but ask most of all for their boldness to be able to give the real solution while they are there. We pray also for the Jews who have become so self-reliant, they think they can do anything. But Father, they can't do anything without you, and they really can't do anything without the Lord Jesus Christ. So I pray that you'll use this time of testing, this time to impress upon their minds, they need a real Messiah. And there's one who's already came and they rejected. But it's not too late. Father, we pray for them and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.